Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. The precision, playfulness, and fullness of movement and text that I have been audience to in big dance theater composes a crucial element to my art education. It's an unofficial education, one that makes me thrilled and honored to be in the audience of projects Annie B. has crafted with her many collaborators as she composes scripts and choreography with tools that are so sharp and so intuitive that the alchemy comes from such practice and devotion. What Corinne Keithley Sayers writes in her introduction to the 53rd State Press book that's for sale here, Another Telepathic Thing, that to Annie B and Big Dance, dance is a basic mode of thought. So that's like my mini introduction. Um, Jess Barbagallo, who's performing down the street right now and wishes that he could be here, um, Flow Tones is opening, um, crafted a really beautiful introduction um, for Annie B that I will now read on their behalf. This is Jess, okay. When I think of Annie B. Parson, mentor, friend, touchstone, I find my hands and turn them in space. I move them through this highly contained kinosphere that she taught me many years ago. It is a space both intimate and legible, more succinctly put, call it theatrical. When I extend from my center, I think about how she once told me to lift from there to address the room. Maybe I was forgetting the balcony, big house, little person, lift. It always worked. Today, I am asked to dance, and instead of shrinking, I carve a little phrase within my reach, engage my core. Sometimes only approximate in my attempts, I want to glow from the nucleus. It is pleasing to watch those who can glow from the nucleus and surprise. It is not magic, but can be practiced. Annie B teaches us how to practice by her very good example of practice. What is deeper than a sensation that conjures memories you couldn't have without the accompanying gesture? Simple articulations make one aware of their heart and their lungs and their ability to make something from this energy. It's in your consciousness. These organs are close. These bodily observations are so ordinary, and yet Annie B. creates so much from that ordinary. So I think that this must be the place. She sees the gem in the gentle. It is through physical slights that I might begin to describe her poetics, <coughs> comprised of cards held close, mastering the bluff. The bluff is in the eyes and where they aim. You can experience this if willing to try. It's very, very important. Annie B. choreographs. She makes compositions. Critics rarely talk about the virtues of composition, a trade secret like off, on, up, down. But everything is embedded in that all before time takes it away and we move to the next. Care for the ephemeral like caring for living well. Her work tells me this. It takes so many hours to make so much love and devotion for a single moment of perfectly placed bodies, hat, mic cord, the poor materials I have seen her use again and again, endlessly imaginative over the last decade. If you respect the picture, you can respect the whole picture because there are 360 degrees of perception. This will entice you to gather with friends and objects and move these pieces of precious around and around. Annie B., you feel her reverberations throughout a community. Please help me in welcoming Annie B. Parson. So um, we're so happy to be here and to have 
the work of Big Dance in the context of the poetry project. That's really, really interesting. Um, and I'll tell you why in a sec. But first I want to I introduce um, the people sitting up here who are really, really kind to offer their talents tonight. Um, Paul Lazar, who is the co-director of Big Dance and is a performer. <coughs> um, Elizabeth Dement Coffing. Uh, she has a bad cold and she still came. <laughs> Courtney Rutherford, who is rubbing Lizzie's back. And on my right is Timberly Canelli. Uh, so they're going to be performing in a second. Um, I want to introduce the subject matter that we're going to talk about tonight, which is that as a choreographer, um, I've always been really interested in structure because when you make dances, um, structure is one of the components of dance. And it's also one of the components of poetry. So a lot of um, exercises or um, errands or whatever you would like to call them that I give myself is to impose different structural ideas on movement. Um, so um, that I've been doing for a really, really long time and had a big book of poetic form uh, which basically teaches you what all the um, most used poetic forms are and do and can be and give you examples of them. And it's a really fun book and it's really dog-eared and I used it for a long time to make dances and um, I thought maybe I should just give you a sense of what that's like before I start talking about how I did the reverse with um, the project that we're gonna talk about. So recently I choreographed a very, uh, one song um, for um, St. Vincent, who's a pop singer, and she really loves, um, she's, a, she's just a language person. She loves grammar, and she's a great, great writer. So I thought that I would choreograph her movement based on uh, grammatical form. So I thought about prepositions, because prepositions have a lot of um, action. So I choreographed this for her. And the words that I used for myself were, the prepositions were beside, beneath, above, below, beyond, around. So then I thought, uh, so that was an example of um, taking a language form and applying it to movement, but when our group, Big Dance, started to work with, um, our, on our last project, I wanted to work from the script of Terms of Endearment, which is a 19, late 1970s suburban movie and one that I really related to because I grew up in the suburbs in the 70s. Um, and I really love the acting with Deborah Winger and Jack Nicholson and Shirley MacLaine. But um, <coughs> I really wasn't so excited about the script. So I thought I would rewrite it, but I've never written anything. And definitely I'm not a writer. Um, so I thought, oh, well, I'll just take poetic forms and apply them to the screenplay and make a new script. Um, everybody was very patient with me. I don't know if you guys remember when I first brought the script in, but um, I was so nervous and I had no idea if it was really terrible because I'd really never done anything like this. And I sort of slowly parceled out little bits of text to see how it was going and everybody was uh, patient and gave me mercy. Um, so what I'm gonna do is I'm going to talk about 
I think nine or 10 different poetic <coughs> forms that I used on the script and then these guys will read the uh, results. So the first form is the ode and I'm sure you've all heard odes. They're traditionally solemn, elevated and heroic and they honor the person or event. Um, they often have flattery and exaggeration. So as I went through the script, um, this is all gonna sound very rational, but it wasn't, it wasn't as organized as this, but this is all in retrospect, but okay, we'll just say this, this was what I was doing. Um, the odes seemed like a poetic form that I could use for the complaints of the young mother. The young mother is played by Debra, Deborah Winger. Her name's Emma in the movie, and she's talking to her own mother, Shirley MacLaine, about how hard it is to care for young children. And this ode, I thought, could give her value. It could give her, um, really respect her problem, um, but it also does the opposite. She's self-pitying, but she's worthy. It elevates motherhood. It reveals a truth about the phase of parenting, which is that you lose all perspective. Um, I end this passage with some lines from the original movie to bring her back to earth. So the original lines were, and Courtney is going to read that. Oh, mother, you don't know the night I've had. The baby decided to get the croup. Of course, it happened at 3 a.m. I don't think I've gotten any sleep yet, and I don't know if he's kidding, but Flap told me he's moving us to a college in Nebraska. So I forgot to say that Flap is her husband. Okay, so now uh, Courtney will read the, this text rewritten into an ode. Oh, mother of the thoroughly spent and thoroughly wasted. I have watched the babies crying and crouping all night. I have seen untidy families. I have seen many nights with no sleep. My sleep and family as torn and stained as rags. And I am sadder than you are. And I am more tired than you are. And now the husband tells me he's moving us to a college in Nebraska. I'm lying in bed with the astronaut. Are you really? How was it? I'll talk to you later. Thanks, guys. Okay. So the next form is called a tetrameter. It's four. Uh, it's a four-foot line, um, and the one that I worked from that I feel like is the most familiar to all of us is, whose woods are these? I think I know his house is in the village, though. So whose woods are these? I think I know his house is in the village, though. He will not mind. That's a tetrameter. Um, I use this form because you can clearly perceive that there is a form when you hear it, uh, in the conversation, which gives the conversation um, it, it between the husband and wife, which was the scene I, I affected the, with the form, it gives it a formality, a lack of intimacy. Um, this, I felt, added to the importance of the discussion that the husband and wife are having. Here the husband, Flap, is telling his wife he has a job offer in Nebraska, just as the wife is settling into her community with her children. He gives this news to her as if she has no choice in the matter. Sometimes the wife breaks the form, giving her character a sense of authenticity. Um, within this, you're gonna hear a form that I'm gonna introduce later that I call redundancy. 
I, that's a form I give to FLAP, and I'll explain it. And I'll explain it later. So here's the tetrometer, um, Paul and Courtney. I've been offered, not fired, a job. Why did you not? Why did not you say this to me? Some time was needed for to think before I spoke to you, my wife. It's um, head of the department. Where? Nebraska. Where? Nebraska. I really don't want to move again. I love the schools, the pediatrician. Department chair, department chair, how can I say no way to this? Pantum. Okay, so this is like my favorite form. Um, it's a form, um, it has this quality of like braiding hair. It's two steps forward and four steps back. It's nonlinear. Um, it keeps repeating lines from above. So the fourth line is the same as the second, and then the sixth line is the same as the fifth. That's not right, but it's something like that. I actually brought it in case anybody wants to see what a real one is. It's slow, it's nostalgic, um, and because of the repetition of lines there and the reaching back to earlier lines, it also gives a quality of convincing yourself of something, of obsessing over a decision. So here I use it on the young wife character, the Deborah Winger character, who has come to accept that she will uproot her family to Nebraska because she doesn't want to face the fact her marriage is over. And the repetition of lines makes her decision unconvincing, as if she's talking herself into something. It's lovely country. I mean, everyone loves to go to Nebraska. You don't know how lucky we are. People come from all over the world to see Nebraska before they die. I mean, everyone loves to go to Nebraska. Some people say it's the best place in the world. People come from all over the world to see Nebraska before they die. So I think you should stop worrying. Some people say it's the best place in the world. You don't know how lucky we are. So I think you should stop worrying. It's lovely country. <laughs> so that's a pantoum. Um, metaphors and similes. Um, the metaphor and simile, as we know, is a representation of something, of, it's a, it's a substitution of one thing for another, is really what it is. And how strange that we perceive the truth of something better when we substitute it for something else, but we do. Um, so here I use metaphors and similes to tell you something about uh, who this character is. She embellishes, she aggrandizes, she's self-involved. She is Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> she's talking to her daughter who's gravely ill in the hospital about her last day date with the astronaut. And again, I end the scene with a line from the movie um, to give her daughter a sense of truth. So I took him to the airport and we were standing there like two people clinging to each other as if it were the last day on earth. And you know what? I got up the prize fighter nerve to tell him I love him. Like spring flowers bend towards the sunshine. You know what his surprising as a snowstorm on a flowery field in summer reaction was? I don't give a shit. I'm sick. 
so metaphors and similes. Okay, <coughs> so the next is redundancy. A redundancy isn't exactly a poetic form, but it's a play with language. So um, it's a use of two or more words with identical meaning. I decided to use this word structure for the character of the deadbeat dad flap. He's a professor, he loves the sound of his own voice. Redundancy made him sound also like he was a liar because his sentences are so awkward and inconcise. When people lie because they are uncomfortable, they often use extra language. Um, the other character speaks with directness and simplicity, which stands in stark contrast to Flap, the dissembler. Great good news. I know what my topic and subject is. I've got it all worked and figured out. What's wrong and disturbing? Where have you been all night, Flap? I fell asleep at the book lending library on that big sofa couch again. I don't know what's errant and wrong with me. Me, Flap. I'm on to you. I'm not doing or being or physicalizing anything. Yes, you are. I hate it when you, Emma, get and feel sad and unhappy. We go through this stage and phase every time you are pregnant and carrying a child in your uterus. No, don't change the subject. What's the subject and topic? That I'm on to you. You wouldn't try to look so innocent unless you were guilty. You're going to have to take and accept my word and perspective. You have no other option or choice. You always get a little paranoid and untrusting early in your pregnancy, in your first trimester. Okay? Just... Redundancies. So, Rhymes, internal, feminine, slant, masculine, plus assonance, alliteration, and consonants. Paul told me not to define each of those kinds of rhymes, so I won't. You want to hear? Because <laughs> he says you're going to be at the poetry project. Everybody's going to know what yeah. a slant rhyme is. These are okay. poetical type people. So many years ago, I answered this the question of uh, how is a rhyme translated into mov movement for myself, um, and I've been working with the answer to that question for a long time. Um, this has been a really fertile thing for me. Um, so in this piece, in the role of chore choreographer as writer, I gave all these rhyme forms to Emma. She's the Deb Deborah Wingard character because she has so much to say and it's so emotional and I always sided with her and so she gets all the best stuff and I even gave her some Keats, which you might recognize in this speech. And at the end of the speech, I added two lines from Shakespeare because um, they break the sort of sense of spring with a very wintry um, truth of great force that takes over. If you are doing ruining and you seek to make me uncatalogued crazy because I am bearing our baby, then you may have just sunk to a rung so low, so bowed, so cowed, so bent that you will never recover over. You have crapped on your code, your credo, your kids. You may have just flipped, Flap. Now the only road to redemption, the only plan to be a man, to be round on the ground, to be the scrape and the clink of the coins and the crystals, to be the Flap that God intended you to be is to admit that you were doing ruining, 
last night, lost night, late night, not here, there, not me, not. Because if you don't do that, don't do that right now, you are a lost ghost man, last frost snowman. Snow over, flap. Your wings are flipped, flap. You are a shell, a knell, a bog, a bag of shit dust, ship rust. It will be rain. Let it come down. Got last from the Scottish play, as they said, <laughs> that last two lines. Word combinations. Um, putting two separate words together and making them into one word. I applied this simple language form to the astronaut, the Jack Nicholson character. It seems a language form that speaks to seduction because it has something crafted, manipulated, and strategic about it. Come over closer, not acres further, little girl. I have something sweet candy in my pocket shirt. Hey, come on, I'll secret show it to you. What is it you want? Hey, come down the garden path. Listen, Aurora. I was invited to a NASA Space Center dinner party at the President White House. You know, some cosmonaut astronauts, all of us around on this planet, getting together with the President. I was long time considering inviting you. Well, anyway, they dinner canceled, but would you have said yes? I would have said I'd like to see the White House. So you would have come? Oh, what the hell? You want a free night at dinner with me sometime? You're toying with me. Exactly. Let's play games, Aurora. Come hands on you, breath on you closer. We're two yard apart. I mean, I know how you feel. There were countdowns when I had my doubts. I said to myself, you agreed to do it. So why not just lay back and enjoy the ride? I'm not lunch going or yard coming. There's something wrong with you. Oh God, I am such a shit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, two adjacent solos. So this is a choreographic form that I, I don't know if I made it up or something, but it's that you take dance material and you divide it in half and one dancer dances all one part of the material and then the other dancer dances the other part of the material. Um, and it's like one person is emptying her whole mind and then the other person is emptying her whole mind. Um, like two discreet rants, unbraided. So I took a scene from the movie and I removed all the back and forth of the conversation and I put all of the characters' lines together and then I put all of the other characters' lines together and I have them speak without interruption. Mother, you look great. I just drove about a thousand miles. Okay, so tell me about the astronaut neighbor. How is the astronaut really? You really like him. So no, maybe not. Come on, Mama. Oh, Mama. Oh. You look terrible. You know, no one wants a girl who's washed out and tired looking all the time. We don't have to talk about the astronaut, though. Are you going to sleep now, 
or are we going to talk? He has a name, though. Yeah, well, it's so, so strange that relatively, I mean, relatively late in life, I've found that sex is so, so fan-fucking-tastic! <laughs> like a moth to flame. This affair is going to kill me. So those are two adjacent solos. Um, the brag. So this is a tradition in American poetry that I called the brag. It can be both patriotic and egotistical. It has confidence, muscle, and pride. Song of Myself, the Whitman is the original American brag. And here I took one line from the movie where Jack Nicholson, the astronaut, proudly states to Shirley MacLaine that he is an astronaut. And I made it into an extended monologue based on a number of poems. One is Ginsburg's Brilliant America. One is Sharon Old's Brilliant The Language of the Brag and Langston Hughes' I Too Sing America and Whitman's Song of Myself. Um, and there are a few direct quotes from these poets, uh, from these poems that you might recognize. The original line, by the way, that the, Nicholson says that I based it on is, there's astronauts in the whole world and I'm one of them. It's a big part of me. I have strived for excellence in outer space. I've wanted to use my NASA navigational skill set to achieve something at the center of the crowd. I was an American astronaut. I've wanted some excuse for my excellence beyond the ordinary for this extraordinary country boasting and bragging I am and was an American astronaut. I have thought about fire and have felt time speed. I have crossed the heavens, the towering unknown. I too sing and am and chart the uncharted. I am and was an American astronaut. I have floated in capsules for days, left gravity behind without glancing back. I have been cheered and shaken hands with presidents. America, I have given you my all, and now I am nothing. When can I go to the supermarket and buy what I need with my good looks? America, woohoo, after all, it is you and I who are perfect. I'm trying to come to the point. I remember looking out the window of the spacecraft. You do sense the speed. You are enveloped in a vacuum, empty of air, devoid of cold, deprived of heat, without weight, an algebra of negatives. But you find a new home of complete floating freedom that bends and chokes and breaks in the harsh environment of the vast void of outer space. In your rich garment of inhales and exhales, you do sense the speed. I sound like somebody with a big belly telling their Korea stories. Okay. <laughs> Once I'm looking out the window, I see a piece of the spacecraft, and it's just whistling along the ground. It doesn't make a sound. The only sound you hear, the only noise in the entire universe is your heart beating. It's poetic. That was it. That was my moment, the one that doesn't go away. You know what I mean? That was my moment. This is my moment. The pastoral. 
This pastoral, it's a poem that celebrates rural life. It's springtime, it's nature, it's bucolic, like today. So I imposed a pastoral on a scene where Aurora happily calls the astronaut and asks him out on a date. Hello? It's the first mild day of spring. Oh, hi. And I was thinking of getting out and trying on and wearing my woodland dress and was curious if you wanted to take me to lunch. I wasn't aware. A few years back, you invited me to... A few years? And I wondered on this mild, wild, warm, and pale green day if the invitation still, if you still, still want... Have lunch? Yes, lunch. Why not? It's early spring, and each minute's sweeter than before, and I could wear my... Good. When? Tomorrow. Good. I'll wear my... Your woodland dress. Nice. We actually cut that scene. I like to hear it. Um, so the last thing was a poem that I wrote. Um, after working with the script for a long time, I decided that I would try to write my own poem. It's based on no particular form. Um, it's, um, let's see, it's, but it uses this overarching metaphor um, that you'll hear and it shows how, it's, it's for Flap and it shows how unwilling he is to be direct with his wife. In the poem I allude to two poems by Robert Frost um, and there's a development in the poem of the redundancy wordplay idea. And I end the passage with a line from the movie. You don't know what I did or made or unmade bed. You don't know what I trod or plowed or gone down or drove uphill or rode. I was swinging the branch low and close to the ground, not heaven. Maybe I was rebuilding a wall to keep the cows or the neighbors or the bulls in or out. Listen, Emma, it's late and you're asleep on the couch. It's quiet, so you think I can't hear anything. It's dark outside, so you think there's nothing there. And we're in a house we don't know. We don't know where the coffee pit pod is or the light switch or the trail around the lake. It's getting late, but we don't go upstairs. Because, because we've never been there. And our suitcases are still down here. So um, these are a few of the poetic forms that I played with. And it's, in retrospect, it's sort of easy to describe. Well, this was kind of fun for me to go back and say, why did I apply certain forms to certain speeches? But it wasn't anywhere near that. Um, clear when I was doing it, but um, it's sort of, if it's, it's not as tidy as the way I presented it, but <laughs> that's, <clears throat> that's, the, um, that's the gist of it. So, um, and there's many, many more in the, in the piece. Okay, so thanks very much. That's it, thanks you guys. To introduce Sarah Rodigari is to make a confession. She is the type of person one might steal language from, you might tonight, just a line or two as it emerges, not exactly intended to be art. 
There is something about Rodegari's mind and the way it gets delivered to us that is the most satisfying humor. It is an academic in drag. It is a jellyfish of satire, the commentary, delicate, beautiful, but holding the power to sting. Sarah hails from Sydney, Australia, where she has been studying the gesture, organizing performance in a series called Restaging, Restaging, and has written extensively on performance with museum catalog essays and a book called Going Under, which is an anthology of ideas and writings on performance across a range of theoretical platforms. She is sadly leaving New York City in a mere month to live and work in a pod with 11 other performance artists and Marina Abramovich at the Caldor Public Arts Center. We are lucky to have Sarah in New York, not only because she is here seeing art, making art, and writing a dissertation on performance, but also because she haunts the places in New York for, from a distinctly un-American perspective. Places like the city parks, fitness centers, and the post office. Um, we will hear tonight about the public pool that Sarah visits with its year-long membership costing less than a monthly membership at a private gym. So just like my last introduction was a hybrid effort with another a voice um, very intimate uh, with Sarah Rodegari's work, um, I will now read um, something that Susan Gibb has written, um, who's a curator currently based in Amsterdam, who has been witness to many of Sarah's performances in Australia. Sarah Rodegari might be an auditor in love. Within her work, it seems that she has been called upon to carry out a routine check, but can't quite get the balance of art and its economy of exchange to add up. From studying the deficits in meaning to speculative lending across forms, as well as weighing up the labor of the artist, the expected investment to be made by an audience and the commodity value of the object, the experience, or the gesture, it is as if she is asking what the code of conduct in art should be and the set of rules we should use to govern this. However, the arithmetic she devises is one in which one plus one might equal a goat, and the way to get the answer is an unassisted 545-mile walk along one of Australia's busiest interior highways, which actually is a performance that Sarah did in 2011. Because what is troubling to her work is an acknowledgement of her amorous entanglement with the institutions of her study and the collaborators she finds along the way. Her continued attempt to keep a cool, critical distance is cyclically disturbed by the rising blush of her own warm-blooded belief that maybe, just maybe, with art, something can still be transformed or achieved. It is a taste for the magic implicit in the puff of smoke of machines, the placement of a single theater light in a suburban home, or a satin cape worn over designer jeans, a small moment of spectacle's dirty thrill. Sarah Rodegari's practice is an anxious world of button-up shirts threatening to come undone. And will she commenced her performance training in corporal mime, that's a fact, her inability to escape language in her current practice might be symptomatic of her hysteric precarity of her own present moment. The hysteric precarity, I, not Sarah's hysteric precarity, of her own present moment, and perhaps our shared moment amidst the performative and financialized turn. Please help me in welcoming Sarah Rodegari. Uh, 
Uh, I've titled this a six-part movement, May Day 2015. Uh, thank you for inviting me here to the Poetry Project in St. Mark's Church, the building that stands as it does just after the discovery of uh, and the invasion of <clears throat> I came as quickly as I could. I'm pleased to see that you also made the journey and hope that your loved ones and your properties are safe. I know you've all got cattle, pot roasts, pie, pottery, spreadsheets, dissertations, and people you are in love with to get back to. I know we've all come a long way to be here. What's more, we've all come a long way to be here together. And as you sit down there, and I stand up here in our bodies that have changed so much over the years, we know that this moment and the moment that carries us forward can also mean no way back. <clears throat> I won't lie to you, it's going to be an emotional roller coaster, but somehow we're going to get through it. It's going to be tough. I've been thinking of this day forever. What should I do with my life? How should I tell my story? Or where do I start? Of course, one thing's important in this whole process is that we keep our humor through all of this. Okay, this is going to do some good. This is going to change the world. This is a performance about existence, one that is without predictability or security. Things are not as they seem, nor as they should be. There is no going back. There is no home. There is nothing to go home to. There is no job, no wife, no children. The one pet that you have, Sigourney, your beautiful black cat on whom you dote, actually hates you despite your best effort. This, or here, is uh, where a slide of Sigourney drinking a green smoothie, a blend of organic kale and fresh young coconut, sitting on 20th century Italian leather in a sun-drenched bourgeois apartment in Sydney would appear. However, in the spirit of minimalism, time management, and for the purpose of dramatic suspense, and of course financial restraint, I'll just ask that you imagine that instead. The performance will contain some movement, some showiness, and some text. It won't be realistic, and there is no particular form or content. It is, however, communicative, but that can only be determined in the moment of reception, yes. Uh, which is to say, you may get it, but you, then again, you may not. Either way, not to worry. Okay, let's begin. Part one, navigating intentions. Good evening, I love you. I hope that doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, but I have to say it, I love you. On June 20-something, 2014, my winter, your summer, I'm not from around here, I arrived in Mexico worried about money. I organized to move into a space with some expats over Facebook. They told me the space was queer and rough around the edges and asked if I was okay with that. What does that mean? queer, rough around the edges, I thought to myself. After 42 hours with fresh, without, sorry, fresh air or internet, 
and having been attacked by the friendly dog twice and having shat into the communal bucket, I remembered the picture of Sigourney, queer, rough around the edges. What would she do? I thought to myself and left. By 9am the next day, I have a footnote, uh, resonating with the advice of art historian and curator Rosalie Goldberg, who suggests that one should always, always, always dress their best, look as, if you, look as though you have it even if you haven't, which is pretty solid advice, unless you have no money. Um, <laughs> I arrived looking and smelling like shit, but nevertheless wearing my finest or only silk. And this is the life of an itinerant artist they never write about. Blue jeans, beige vans, striped vintage shirt, possibly Moscot sunglasses hanging around your neck with a confident idiot strap. There you were, casually put together, your white clean canteen at the water fountain, filling it. Hello, New York, I said to myself, but you didn't even smile. I'm an average C-B person, sometimes an A, rarely an A+, which loosely translates into daily life means I'm not too fussed, and as a C-B, I'm fine with that. I've never actively chased anything in my life, not even a bus, and I've never sought out friendships. But that all changed that day in June in Mexico City when I met you. Cue music. This is where I would play a song. Um, the song would be um, Taylor Swift. It's a new song for me. Um, and the song is I Knew You Were Trouble When You Walked In. Um, but for the sake of time, minimalism, kindness, I'm not a singer, and dramatic effect, and perhaps the fact that I actually don't know if I agree with the intention of the song, I hope that you could just imagine it instead. Uh, when I first met you, I felt something I'd never felt before. When I looked into your eyes, I knew I was home. You understood me the way no one else ever has. When you finally smiled a week later, I noticed that your teeth were as white as your white, clean canteen. You gave me this. Let it be known to those sitting in the back and those listening to the audio recording that this is a wooden, I think wooden, bracelet of some description. It's elastic. It's also leopard skin. It could have been sandalwood, but it doesn't smell anymore. I said, thank you, thank you. I'm going to keep it forever and ever. And then you gave me this. Let it be known to those sitting in the back and those listening on the audio recording that this is a red leather cuff. Thank you. I'm going to keep it forever and ever. And then you gave me this. Let it be known to those sitting in the back, just in case you can't see, I've just put, and those on audio, that I've just put on a red fabric cap with white kind of tire tracks on it. 
for want of a better description. And I said, thank you. I'm going to keep it forever and ever. You said, why don't you come to New York? I said, oh, don't be ridiculous. Oh, America. Oh, Americans. Part two, departure. And so here we are, we've left the shoreline, but we're still close to it, at least enough for our bodies to know that they can always go back. And up to a certain point, we hold on to this feeling of security because, well, in truth, we haven't really left. What's your day today, you asked? Today, I said, I'm trying to write poetry. Are you a poet? No, I said. Then what are you then? It's, I, I have to say that I've never met so many poets as I have in New York City. Everyone, everyone I meet is a poet, so I wonder why I'm not. And I said, I don't know what I am, I, and I think to myself, quick, think of something, C hyphen B, student, middle of the road. You might be looking at me right now, thinking, What's she doing? Why is she apathetically voguing? <laughs> that is so performer 2013. That is so queer New York International Arts Festival 2013. And it's true. It is. It was. But in fact, this is one of those midsummer Sundays where everyone sits around saying, I drank too much last night. Or so begins the swimmer, John Cleaver's spare and reportedly horrifying New Yorker short story. The film starring Burt Lancaster begins at the dawn of a new day, confident middle-aged man in bathers with tan and swimming in the backyard of some friend's pools. It occurs to the swimmer that a string of other backyard pools reaches all the way across the valley to their own home. Pool by pool, they form a river all the way to our house, he says. Why not swim, everyone, swim all the way home, as it were, he asks. And of course, this sounds like a glorious adventure. Like all adventures, it starts the way. But moving from morning to dusk, from sunshine to rain, from youth to age, from fantasy to truth, the world of the swimmer is a classic tale of self-deception. Cheever's swimmer is a tragic hero disguised as an upper-class suburbanite. A classic description of a New Yorker subscriber, you say. A classic description of American surrealism where things happen and nothing is rational. That's this town, you say. But the real tragedy is not to be found in our own drowning hero, Bert Lancaster, but in the bystanders around the pool he swims through, who, in stepping back, mistakenly think that this cruel fate won't happen to them. When you talk about the swimmer, will you talk about yourself, asks the poster of the 1968 film. Yes, I already am, I say. This is exactly how I feel at the Metropolitan Pool in Brooklyn. <clears throat> round and round, up and down, through the streets of your town.
I rehearse this every day. I make my way through the streets of your town. And this is where um, I would perhaps paint a line of tape whilst I was singing from one point to the other. And don't the sun look good today? Shine. But the rain is on its way. Shine. Watch the butcher shine his knives. Shine. And this town is full of battered wives. Thank you. Round and round, up and down, through the streets of your town. <clears throat> now, as you can see, for those listening, whilst I was singing, I had this gestural blue line installed along the floor, just here in front of the poetry project audience. That's for those listening. Uh, and as I'm walking along it, um, and given that it's May Day and I'm dressed as I am, like a Mayflower, you might be thinking, oh, look, a parade. She's going to do a dance or say a prayer or hang some flowers and maybe there will be cake. Or you could be thinking, depending on your bend, uh, oh, look, look how she's dressed with all the markings of a revolutionary. She's going to protest. She's going to protest the precarity of our lives in which we can no longer clearly delineate between life and work, where our futures can no longer depend on our past and our thoughts of security slip into an effective neoliberal reliance on terror, threat and risk. But this is just a gestural blue line. This is just me trying to swim one neat, uninterrupted kilometre in around 20 minutes at the Metropolitan Pool in Brooklyn. Glad you asked. One kilometre is just under 44 lengths of the 75-foot pool, which is less than 25 metres or not quite half the length of an Olympic-sized pool and certainly, certainly not long enough to get a groove on in freestyle, let alone butterfly, yet people, in particular one tall woman in red bathers, still do. So if the dimensions of this room are 38 feet by 45 feet, and they are, I checked, I asked, then let's say that this line that I am swimming along is um, 45 feet, which is roughly 14 meters, which is nowhere near the length of the pool. But for the sake of minimalism, time management, the dramatic arc of this piece, let's just say that it is. In actual fact, um, I have to now swim 72 lengths, so let's say I've done about 70. Um, and that means in order for me to reach my goal of an uninterrupted kilometre, I've got two more lengths to go, which in American terms is 0.62 of a mile. Uh, now, I know that you've all come a long way and there that you've all got cattle, pot roasts, pie, pottery, spreadsheets, dissertations, and people that you are in love with to get back to. But for time and tension, let's just say that I finished that bit. So, 
And now I'm just here. This is the Metropolitan Pool in Brooklyn. This is the long-serving, grim, non-spacious institution. This is functionalism with certain neoclassical details. I have in brackets expand, but I haven't. This is romantic, queer, and rough around the edges. This is Burt Lancaster in The Swimmer, and this is me, Burt Lancaster, swimming all the way home from fantasy to reality, from here to you. This is not an intermediate pool as advertised, which would suit me, a C-B type personality perfectly. Instead, this is me with four other people neck and neck in the fast lane, drowning. This is them with props, with fins, with flippers, with abs doing butterfly. And this is me with butterflies. This is not for the faint-hearted, not for the average person. These are long bodies in short pools at dizzying speed, creating turbulence. This is the suffering of courage, of dread, of possibility, of drowning. This is the wild space of forgetting and memory. This is the lifeguard paid but not enough to watch or listen. These are the lifeguards barely able to help themselves, let alone those in the pool. This is please, 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 please pay attention to my performing body, my laboring, my production of effect, my new economy du jour. This is pool reception, patchy filtration, and flaky skin. This is me at the pool. This is me in New York City. Either way, excuse me, no, you go, no, after you, no, not to bother, no, 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 sure, no, that's fine, not, not a problem, that's fine, no, sorry, you, no, you go ahead, no, sorry, sorry, yeah, okay. A free market economy, a butterfly near extension, and this is waiting for the water to recede Wednesday's afternoon. I know, why do I bother to try? But I am. I'll just do this. <laughs> I can't stop looking at you. I hope that doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, but I can't stop looking at you. Back by the side of the pool, others, not us, others edge across to the second threshold and wait for their approach where they can get close enough to say they've arrived, shallow end, deep end, it doesn't matter, they don't swim. They wait to walk like someone who jumps, they take off and then land, but they don't remain in flight. They do not swim. They don't really do much. Part three, direction, but not you, not me, not Bert Lancaster, not us. We know that another river runs in the one that everyone sees, where all security has vanished, like the extra lane within the lane at the Metropolitan Pool, like the river of pools leading back to the suburban pool, home in the swimmer. We know that the real passage happens in the middle where all reference points are lost, where the ground is missing and solitude is found. Left or right, it doesn't matter, you say. So we forget about stability, not because we hope or wait for it to come back, but because from here on, this is the new world, this is how it will be. Our bodies adapt to this turbulent environment. Under threat of drowning, we confidently start a breaststroke. 
To the lifeguard supposedly watching us, it's no big deal. It's just like moving from one place to another, just like getting a second passport. But to us, this denies the middle ground. It reduces us to a point of no dimension, like a jump, like the others by the side of the pool. On September 11, no, yes, September 11, gosh, <laughs> you know that day more than I do. Um, 2001, apparently, uh, rumor has it that Michael Jackson uh, was rehearsing in Madison Square Gardens with um, two of his friends that he was accompanied with, Liza Minnelli and uh, Marlon Brando. Now, um, when the planes crashed into the Twin Towers, Jackson, Nelly, and Brando ran to the car and they hopped in the closest car they found and they um, drove straight across the bridge to New Jersey and as far out of New York City as they possibly can. And the question is, who was driving? Was it Brando? Was it Jackson? Was it Minnelli? That's a true story, actually. Um, I have to tell you how comfortable I am with you. I feel very, very, very comfortable with you. When I am with you, my past disappears. I could feel that I could tell you anything. I could tell you secrets I've told no one. Give me your hands, you say. I can carry you. But the body that crosses learns about other worlds, the ones we're heading towards, and also the ones we swim through along the way. And because of this, when we arrive, you as you, me as me, and Bert as Bert, we have changed. Language, customs, genres, species. We are no longer standing or walking. We are now an intermediary, both a fish and a person. An A, well, sorry, a C hyphen B, never an A, and that's okay. We, the swimmers, we, the Burt Lancasters, are truly exiled, deprived with no home, a fire with no hearth, an intermediary, angel, messenger, hyphen, forever outside of every community, but a little already in all of them, Harlequin already. All this happened at the Metropolitan Pool, you ask. Yes, I say which, like the swimmer, stays in the memory like an echo that never quite disappears. Part four, arrival. You say, that's fantastic. That's arousing, Sarah. Did you write that? I say, no. It's a bit of Michelle Serre, a bit of Lone Twin, the go-betweens, and Bruce Jenner but I changed it just a little bit for you. Thank you. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org. 